Hello and welcome to Film File, Just the Reviews, Volume 4. So, for this volume of a collection of, as the title suggests, Just the Reviews, we take a look at episodes 16 through to 20, which you can still find on all your favourite podcast platforms. And over this episode, I'll be compiling together reviews of Starman, Superman the Movie, The Princess Bride, Serpico, Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, Untouchables, The Platform, Bad Boys for Life, Finding Neverland and The Abyss. That's a packed collection of reviews. Uh, as a quick note, these episodes were recorded early into lockdown last year when we were still getting a handle on the audio settings and how to record remotely. So it's not the most consistent of compilations and some of the audio spikes quite high, some of it's quite low. Y- you'll get the feeling for what struggles we had to try to get the show to work remotely. Hope you enjoy it. So let's get straight on with the reviews. Anyway, shall we move on? Last recording, I was given the challenge for Andy Hasn't Seen, and it was a film that is... Uh, th- this was your second pick after you p- picked uh, the first one for the show before, and it was John Carpenter's Starman. I'm a, I'm a massive John Carpenter fan. I'm a huge John Carpenter fan, and there's not much in his repertoire that I dislike. Probably Ghosts of Mars being, being the bottom of the list, but Starman is one of those films... It, it, it's not in a typical John Carpenter film, but it absolutely hits the right buttons for me. I just think it's a near-perfect film with a, an extraordinary performance from Jeff Bridges, who was nominated for an Oscar for it. It's just a film that I absolutely love. It's science fiction. It's a road movie. It's a, it's a romance story. It's got an amazing soundtrack. It's the least John Carpenter film of all John Carpenter films, but it just works. So tell me, Andy. Did you enjoy it? I'm quite a huge fan of John Carpenter myself. And this is one of the ones that passed me by because what it sounds quite bland on paper. It sounds just like, oh, look, it's an adult ET. And it didn't really hold any like draw to me. And that's why I just let it just sit at the side for so long. Having now watched it, I can't believe that I waited so long to watch it. Like you say, Jeff Bridges was amazing in it. He plays an alien who is a scout alien who ends up shot down in the US, who disguises himself into a cloned body of Karen Allen's recently deceased husband. And so she's confronted with all the emotions that she felt towards her husband. But this intruder who is pretending to be a husband, who just wants to get to safety. I mean, plot wise, it is E.T. He wants to, he phones home and he wants to get home and he needs to get to the place for it. But it's such a heartfelt film. And like you say, it's got road movie elements and everything in there. But Jeff Bridges, his mannerisms as this alien inside a human skin. So obviously doesn't know how to control all the muscles. He's very like twitchy and jerky and robotic at times. Even when he's speaking, his mouth is moving in rather weird patterns to what the actual words coming out are. And it gives a completely unnerving and truly alien kind of presentation. And I can genuinely see why he got the nomination for the Oscar for this, because you're watching it and you're thinking, is he real? Is he a human? I don't know what's going on. But then over the course of the film, as him and Karen Allen's character are on this journey to try to get him to like where his race are going to come and collect him, he starts to grow more human. 
and he starts to get attached to her as he's learning the human ways and learning how she why she reacts certain ways and learning the emotions that she felt towards her husband and the connection that they, those two forms had. And as he becomes more human, his mannerisms, while still the occasional like strange twitch, soften a bit and he starts to grow whilst at the same time the risk is still there that he needs to get off the planet, otherwise he will die. And it's absolutely traumatizing, heart-rendering, and a beautiful film. I absolutely loved it. I, I so want to watch it again. I really, really want to watch it, it again. And I can't believe that I waited this long to watch it. I mean, it's sci-fi. Why I avoided it, I don't know. It's John Carpenter. Why I avoided it. Everything is there. Are reasons why I should be watching it. And yet, on paper, it's one of them that it sounded so, eh, a love story between an alien and, and someone. Oh, great. I'm not really that fussed. But I'm so glad that you told me to watch this one. I'm really pleased that you like it. As I said, it means, it's one of those films that, for some reason, means an awful lot to me. I think I saw it uh, at the right time. It was, a, it was a box office flop when it came out. People calling it an E.T. ripoff. In fact, the studio that made it passed on E.T. for Starman. It had gone through a lot of rewrites script-wise. Kevin Bacon had been attached at one point to the role. Uh, went through numerous uh, numerous changes to the film that we got. I absolutely adore Starman. I don't think it's one of those films that have, has become a classic as, as time's gone by in the other way to say John Carpenter's The Thing has. But I, I think it's it's a, one of Carpenter's most underrated films. It's, it is... It is beautiful, and it's beautiful just in the performances alone, even if this, the story does feel somewhat over-familiar. If you haven't seen Starman, give it a shot. It's well worth it. You'll absolutely love it. So talking about films, as we always are, and talking about films that are, are classics, this week's Deep Dive is a film, again, that, that I absolutely adore. We'll put it in my top five of all-time favourite films. Even though I live in an age where... Avengers Endgame exists, where the Avengers is is everything as a as a twelve year old. I would have hoped, I would have got to see, and thankful that I have seen Superman the movie is still the zenith of the superhero film for me. From a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway, from the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the Daily Planet, look. Up on the screen, it's Superman. Superman, the movie. It's the one film that, again, I think is is an absolute classic and I think is damn near pitch perfect. And I can watch it time and time again. And I've probably seen it, probably the most film I've ever, ever watched and rewatched, bar my all-time favourite, which is Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. I think Superman the movie is the film I've seen the most. Absolutely adore it. And this is this week's deep dive. Andy, what are your memories of Superman the movie? Did you see it in the cinema? I did. 1978 at the age of five. The year before I'd been introduced to sci-fi with Star Wars. And then the following year we get Superman. And I genuinely believed a man could fly. As someone who's like always said that I'm a Marvel geek. I love Marvel comics. I love comics overall, but I've always been more Marvel, more Marvel, more Marvel. Yeah, but I've always turned around and said, but Superman is still my favourite superhero. I absolutely was taken by the whole representation of this man from another planet who is invulnerable, can fly, etc, etc. I genuinely believed that what I was seeing on screen was taking place. I know that the effects nowadays, when you rewatch it, they're a bit shonky, but Christopher Reeves's 
commitment to it makes you believe it. I adore Superman. I rewatched it this past week um, in preparation for today, just to, you know, I've not watched it for at least ooh, 12 months, so I needed to watch it again. And straight away, I was just captivated once more. I was drawn into it again. I'm sure there's still there's some people out there who don't know the story of Superman. So I will give a quick synopsis. Christopher Reeve plays Kal-El, the son of Jor-El, who's sent to Earth to avoid the destruction of his home planet Krypton. Grows up on a farm in Kansas with Martha and Jonathan Kent. They raise him to hide his powers and be responsible. And as an adult, he moves to the big city of Metropolis, using his human guise of Clark Kent as a mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet. And there he meets Margot Kidder's Lois Lane, and also where he reveals himself to the world as Superman. And that's all that you need to know going in. What a beautiful film. I love the structure of it. I love that we spend so much time with his growing up and his learning his life's lessons. It takes its time, doesn't it? It takes its time to 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 get to the iconic first shot. We build on that. And and I've said this many times, it's it's three films. We have three films in one. We've got a, a science fiction film yeah. uh, in the in the Krypton sequences. We've got small town Americana in the, the Smallville sequences. And then when we move to, to Metropolis, we've got an action-adventure film with elements of, of slightly campy elements that are still a throwback to the 60s Batman uh, and sort of early 70s Bond. But we, we have three films in one, and there's a sense of belief in all of those films. They don't feel unconnected. They feel like we're, we're, we're part of this this absolutely epic. And, and no matter what you say about, about current Marvel films, current DC films, we have not had... A superhero movie this epic uh, with its running time with its cast with its whole sense of itself it feels like a huge film it feels like it's you need to watch it on the biggest possible screen widescreen ever it, it still has that retention of being one of those a typical 70s epic movies where you just had a grand cast as you said it's this there's there is something classical about it and interesting with regards to the cast is the the top billing for the film was someone who was only in it for the first five minutes, and that's Marlon Brando, who was paid at that point an astronomical rate to be in to be in a movie. <laughs> of course, what, what you have to remember is is that while he was in the first fifteen minutes, twenty minutes of the film, he was paid for two films, still a huge amount. But uh, of course, with with the problems that happened with the production of Superman two, his parts got taken out due to due to legal issues and were replaced in uh, in the director's cut, but he was supposed to be in two films. And of course, the other big star of it was was Gene Hackman. Yeah, um, who played Lex Luthor, but apparently refused to shave his hair for the role. Yes. And so they made out that Lex is wearing a wig and there's only one scene in the whole film where he's got a bald cap on. Yeah. Just because it, Gene Hackman, I'm not going to listen to people telling me to shave my hair off for a role. No, and I'm not going through makeup every day. We'll do it for one day and that's it. A great way to get round like an actor's ego. I, I love that. <laughs> Mar- Marlon Brando as well, who re- reportedly refused to learn his lines. And so there was little notes around the sets of Krypton with little prompts for his lines. And that's why a lot of the time when, you, when, when I was rewatching it, I was watching for this. And you can see that when he's talking to someone, he's not necessarily looking at them while he's talking to them. He's looking just over their shoulder because there's a note behind them with what his lines are. And he does a lot of like gazing at, at Crystal. And that's because he's got lines just scribbled on the side of the Crystal to remind him. But he brings to it, having Brando as, as, as Jor-El, he brings to it a, a, a gravity to the film, which instantly, oh, yeah. there's the opening line of the film, this is not fact, uh, this is not fantasy, this is fact. Which which states exactly what this 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 film's about right in the the very very opening piece of dialogue. 
but he, he he gives it he gives it a depth that elevates it up from being from being a, a Batman nineteen sixty six type movie. So Richard Donner, who directed it, originally was going to be Guy Hamilton, but they shifted production from Italy to the UK for for tax reasons, and uh, uh, Hamilton couldn't do it. He approached the film, and he uses a term which I think is a great word called verisimilitude, which is basically giving the appearance of being true or real and because of that he gave the film for me heart he 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 never once uh, uh, winked to the camera i know superman winks to the camera right at the very end but he played it all as though it was real it was existing in a real krypton a real smallville a real metropolis and and gave it gave it that gravity it was an an absolutely uh, horrendous production they were shooting superman 2 at the same time as they were shooting superman uh, which the Salkins who produced it had, had taken that trick from their Three and Four Musketeers film. It was an incredibly difficult shoot. Uh, it ended up with Donna not returning for the sequel, even though a lot of his footage was included in it. And Richard Lester uh, from Help and Hard Day's Night fame took over. And I, I have a lot of problems with Superman 2. I, I don't love it as much. I have both versions, the Lester version and the Donna version. But there is something about Superman the movie which is just right. And it deals with that 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 one problem that Superman has, which is the most uh, powerful creature in, uh, on the planet, in the world. But the only thing that, that can really defeat him is not just kryptonite, but it, it's the human heart. And it's that philosophy behind it which gives it its strength. It gives it something more. It gives it a, a film that's now about something rather than just daring do and a guy flying. As you said, the, the, the effects work is dated these days. And I would love to see Warners do a, a deluxe print of it and 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 do and bring the the effects up to date. But at the time, they were groundbreaking. They're nothing we'd never seen anything like that and, and to that degree. And it and it holds up because a lot of the effects work is physical with with Christopher Reeve on wires and cables being flown around New York and it's it's just it's 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 just an awesome movie. I mean, Christopher Reeve's uh, commitment to the role as well is one of the things that makes it work so well. You know, he was told that they could give him a padded suit to make him look bulked up for Superman, and he insisted on going on a training regime to bulk himself up so it looked real. Whenever there's the flying scenes, despite the fact that he's probably dangling quite painfully from various ropes and, like, cables, he is so committed to it. He is, like, always looking in the right direction. He's, like, banking his body as he's turning through the air. He is, he just basically is Superman in that film. Watch it, rewatching the film, it's like, I love the creative decisions. I love the fact that it opens up with, like, a curtains opening, and then it goes through the history of the comic book and the Daily Planet, and then it expands out for the opening titles. And it just really gives it that, like, drawing you in slowly and then just bombasting you with these titles coming towards the screen in a whooshing kind of way, whilst John Williams's perfect soundtrack is playing over it. And as soon as that soundtrack plays, I mean, I had exactly the same feeling when I first saw Superman Returns, that that soundtrack itself was enough to hit me emotionally and draw me into it. I mean, it's such a perfect soundtrack. John Williams has done some great soundtracks. I mean, this Star Wars one, fantastic. Indiana Jones, but Superman for me is the perfect one. And I've said this before, I think it was on our, I think it might be on one of the spin-off DC podcast episodes, where I said that what's great about John Williams' soundtracks is they basically scream the name of the film to you. Yes. And with with, with this, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Superman. Superman, yeah. and he, he 
yeah, it conveys the film. I absolutely adore this film. And every time I go back to it, I fall in love with it again. And more than falling in love with the film, I fall in love with Margot Kidder again. How perfect she was as Lois Lane. She was the perfect Lois Lane. She had an energy, she had an edge, but she also had a bit of fragility within this that hardened shell that she tries to put on. Absolutely marvellous. And the, the first appearance of Superman in the film, which is the helicopter, top of the building, falling off cables, and he swoops to the rescue. That scene just makes me well up in tears. It's just perfect. I totally get that. And you talking about it uh, has given me goosebumps because there, there is something about that, that, that sequence which is inspired. It's, it captures everything that you need to know about what the rest of the movie is going to be about. Whether you buy into uh, Gene Hackman's rather hokey plan to, to destroy California as a land grab. It's, <laughs> uh, it, it is a hokey. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an almost uh, uh, Bond-type, silly Bond plot. Sink California because he's got all the land next to California, which will be worth a lot more because it's coastline. <laughs> Absolutely. But you believe it all the way through. The, the humour is a little bit overplayed in places, but it doesn't stop you loving the film. Because of, of, of Richard Donner's, just because of Richard Donner just giving it heart all the way through and believing it. Uh, and, and we can't talk about Superman the movie without mentioning Christopher Reeve because he was not only just pitch perfect and, 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 and as you said about the flying sequences, the, you believed in him, but you believed in the fact that he's two people. You believe that yeah. he's Clark Kent and you believe that he's he's Superman. And there's, there's the one sequence where they go on the date, Superman and Lois Lane go on the date. There's a moment where he's going to explain to her that he is in fact Superman. And she walks out of the room and he takes his glasses off and his entire body changes. He goes from being slouched the glasses come off and, and he physically changes into into Superman from Clark Kent. And she walks back in the room and his voice gets higher uh, and then he slouches again and you go, yep, these guys are two different people. It's so easy to believe that they are not Clark Kent and Superman being the same person. Because that's always the thing with um, Superman. People say that he's a disguise as he puts on a pair of glasses. Oh, wow. No one can see past that, can they? But he makes it believable, which is one thing that... A th- feel that the more recent Superman films, the Man of Steel films, didn't quite get right because, I'm sorry, but with a pair of glasses on, he still looked like he was a muscular hero. Yeah, uh, yeah. But Christopher Reeve actually, like like you say, he changed his stance, he changed his mannerisms, twitchiness. Everything was different. His voice gets an octave higher. You could genuinely believe that, okay, fair enough, I can see why people can't see this person within that one. Yeah, he, he's absolutely superb. And of course, there was the, there was a big casting call for it uh christopher reeve was co- originally considered too too young and too skinny uh bruce jenner was uh auditioned for the title role patrick wayne was actually cast son of john wayne but dropped out when his father was diagnosed with with cancer so many people including sylvester stallone lyle wagner james khan were all muted to to have this have this uh, uh have, have the job of it but it's it's a testament to to christopher reeve that it affected everything about how superhero movies are played. You can see Superman the movie in a Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies. You can see yeah. uh, Superman the movie, how it influenced the look of, of the comics with, when John Byrne took over and quite recently into uh, when Gary Frank draws, draws in. The way that the S logo was no, no longer the S logo. It, it was the, the family crest. The, the L family crest, or it was part of Kryptonian language. And all those have seeped into the mythology of Superman, into the comics, 
uh, um, because to some extent, for a long time, the movie was better than the books. Yeah, it was everything that the books weren't. It was it was still hokey and comic booky, but it but it had heart and it had warmth, which the 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 books had a tendency in that time to be kind of one off one off issues. Uh, Superman's villain of of the issue, so it, they were they were better than the books. I know that um, in this day and age, with the darker Zack Snyder approach towards the Superman mythos, a lot of people sneer at the old Superman films as being too light and fluffy. Which for me, I feel that the kind of the mistaking a visual representation with the actual content of the story, because in the story itself, it has got a lot of darker elements within there, and it, it's no different a story than what Man of Steel's given us. It's just presented in a more hopeful manner. And uh, this, this, the fact that it's bright and colourful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still a story about a lone alien isolated on a world that probably won't understand him, raised in exactly the same way by the Kents as what we see in Man of Steel later on, only given a whole different way of looking at things by the way that Jonathan Kent departs the film. In this classic Donna version, Jonathan Kent's death is a way to show Superman that despite all his powers, he can't save everyone. And that is the founding basis for this character who wants to be the best that he can be. He wants to save everyone, uh, but and he doesn't want to get connected to people. And it leads towards like him when he starts to get connected to Lois and how that affects his um, betraying his father's um, instructions towards the end of the film. Which we need to talk about the end of the film. We need to talk about like people who go, oh, he tur- he made the Earth spin backwards, and that turned back time. That's a visual representation for him traveling backwards through time. It's not him spinning the Earth backwards and everything goes the different way. It's a visual metaphor. It is a cop out. Turning back time is a cop out, but it's a it's a heartfelt cop out. It's needed there for the 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 con- human connection elements that they were building towards, and that was supposed to have been at the end of the second film. It was supposed to be after two films worth of loads of things gone wrong. It's his way of correcting everything and rectifying his own mistakes. So we never got to see what that completely played out with. I know that the Donner cut of Superman 2 put that back in, but it doesn't quite have the same impact as what it would have had if we had the whole two film journey before we got there. It also, it's referenced throughout the film that how powerful he is. Uh, and right at the beginning of the film, He's warned by Jarrell that not to interfere with human history, and he does, and he does that. But he does it for love. He does it for the, for the woman that he cares the most about, who he could at that point in the film he can't have. He can't have a Superman, and he can't have as as uh, Clark Kent. So there's a there's still that underlying slight tragedy about it, even though he saved her. He can't have her until Superman Two comes along. But as as you said, it's a visual representation. It's but it's a fairy tale as well. There's even a line in the film that he says uh, Peter Pan is a, is a fairy tale to, to Lois Lane when talking about flying. It's just, it's beautiful. It works on so many different levels. The dialogue in some of the script is absolutely fantastic and subtle and, and brilliant. Uh, whether that's a counter to the many script writers, but I, I like to think that Tom Mankiewicz, who came in as what was called the creative consultant, working with Donna gave it that gave it that human feel that it that it had been lacking and be, I mean much more comic booky in previous adaptations but it, it's a fantastic film stands the test of time if you've not seen it see it with fresh eyes see it in a way that it was meant to be seen a childlike eyes and not with with the way that comics have gone and the way that the comic book movies have gone see it for something that is just is the start of where we are today we wouldn't have the, the movies that we're having without 
uh, Superman the movie. And from what I believe, Kevin Feige always shows it to on the start of a new production when he's working with new directors, because he understands that that is is the template film for how comic books movies, especially origin movies, should be done. I, I could talk about the Superman franchise until the cows come home, um, or until crypto at least comes home. This week is a, a firm favourite of mine, a film that I absolutely adore, and it's also one of the films that I have to show potential girlfriends if they don't get it. There's no relationship here, honey. And that <laughs> film is Princess Bride. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. You may have heard tales of damsels in distress. I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? But you've never seen anything like the Princess Bride. Inconceivable! She gets kidnapped. He gets killed. I've seen worse. But it all ends up okay. Have fun storming the castle! The Princess Bride, a new comedy by Rob Reiner. Rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Much beloved film from 1987 by Rob Rayner, in which a young homesick boy is told a fantasy story about a farm boy turned hero who quests to be reunited with his one true love. And the kid doesn't want to hear this story, but as it goes on along, he realises that a love story isn't necessarily just a love story. Now, as I said, I absolutely adore this film. I have uh, an interesting fact. I've got to get it out there from the get-go is I was an extra in this film. You were what? <laughs> I was an extra in Princess Bride because not many people know that it was shot almost on our doorstep. It was shot uh, in and around parts of Sheffield. There's a, a place called the Longacre Estate, which is just outside of uh, the city that we live in. And that was a major part of uh, a part of the setting. Uh, and it's a film that I absolutely adore. It's It's an almost perfect film, even though it's got a number of plot holes. Not all of it works. Not all of it makes sense. I think I think it's it's a beautiful film. It's it's exactly everything that a a great fairy story is, and that's timeless. But I know, particularly Andy, that you don't share the love. I'm going to let Scott say what he thinks of it before I'll um, come along and ruin the party. <laughs> it's tough, Princess Bride, because a lot of why it works is also why for me it's not one of my personal favourites because it, it's it's a really good sort of self-aware sort of. I want to say a parody, but it's almost like uh, it's very loving whilst doing it, of like fantasy stories and stuff, and and it's it's got a lot of heart to it. But apart from a, a lot of quote worthy and memorable moments, which it does definitely have, it's not that riotously funny, and it's not that I don't think I could show it anyone and it get universal love. I think it's very much a right place, right time sort of film. But I do enjoy it. I often find that I'm in the minority whenever this film is mentioned. Now, I didn't watch it when it first came out. I had no interest in watching it when it first came out. But so many people had gone on about how amazing this film was over the years that about a decade later, I then went, okay, then let's give it a shot. And I didn't get it. I watched the whole film going, huh? What? Am I, have I got, is, the two, is there another VHS somewhere else called The Princess Bride? Is this like one of them where you go into a video store and you accidentally take home the porn version of Safe and Private Ryan? And I, I was just like, this can't be the same film because everyone says how it's so amazingly told and how hilarious it was, and I couldn't get it. And then cut to only about five years ago, and I was like, maybe, just maybe, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I'm going to give it another shot. And uh, no, nope, I still didn't get it. It feels very cosplay-esque and amateur dramatics throughout. The cast didn't connect with me. I watched it thinking, well, it's out the way. I can move on to something else now. 
And overall, it was a decidedly average film that, like Scott's already mentioned, is notable for the quotes and memes that it started. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. And inconceivable! But nothing's really funny. It's not the hilarious, rip-roaring comedy that loads of people tried to tell me it was. It's not the great adventure film that people tried to tell me it was. It felt like a TV movie. And I genuinely don't understand the love for it that so many people have. I mean, I know that you, you've got your personal, like, you know, it, it was you an extra on there. It was filmed locally. There's that aspect of it. And you were there at the right, like Scott said, you had to be there at the time. I'm with Scott on this one, that this is not a film that I feel that I could turn around to someone and say, oh, watch this, you'll love it. Whereas like with Highlander, I had no doubts that Scott would embrace it because the love for that is for how cheesy it is and how ridiculous it is, but it's a great adventure. But with this, I don't feel that I could sit it, sit down and go, here you go, watch this, you're going to enjoy this, without walking away going, whoa, and backing away as though we've just planted a bit of stick of dynamite and people are going to hate you for it. I, I don't... I, I don't connect with it, and I don't know. I, I don't quite know what the love. Maybe for the film then is. I can try and win you over by by trying to tell you why I why I absolutely adore it. Firstly, I'm a massive uh, Rob Reiner fan as a director. Uh, at that point, he'd come off uh, This is Spinal Tap. Uh, he was, uh, uh, I think, it was just slightly before Stand by Me. It's written by, for me, the greatest screenwriter of all time, William Goldman. And if you ever even get a chance to read the book. Uh, which is an abridged version of, of, a, of a story. It's, it does have that all-knowing, all almost um, classical throwaway Jewish humour to it. Uh, and you get that with the Billy Crystal character. I, I don't think, for a start, it's a rip-roaring, laugh-a-minute film, and I've never seen it like that. I've seen it in the same way that it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's just a, a play on that whole fairy story. I think we've all been that kid when we've had a fairy story read to us and it gets to the kissy parts and Fred Savage goes as the kid. Uh, I want to skip this bit. And, and Peter Falk as the, as the grandfather reading reading the story. I connect as much to that as I connect to to the rest of it, of, of, of being that, that kid who's, who didn't like the kissy parts in, in fairy stories, but will sit through it for the great adventure. I think it's the knowingness, and, and I think, Scott, you mentioned about this, it's the knowingness of the fairy story. I've never been a big fairy story fan as a child, but because this upended that and made it contemporary, gave it contemporary humour, I, I just bought into in, into it. And I think that what the film has in tons is absolute is absolute heart. I think it's it has huge plot holes that you could drive uh, a, a bus through. It has parts of it that don't make any sense whatsoever but to me that's the nature of it because most most fairy stories don't have have a, a great lick of, of logic to them and it is kind of it was kind of pre-shrek for the dissection of 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 the of that kind of fairy story i think carrie elwes postmodern take yeah that that postmodern take of it uh, without ever ripping it apart i think it's it stays true to it i think there's an honesty to it that it's it is a fairy story and the absurdities of fairy story are all there. And it does have that knowingness, but it never dissects it. It never, never tears it apart. It doesn't become a pastiche of it. It becomes a fairy story in its own right. And I think the heart, I think the, the, the love story between incredibly young Carrie Elwes and incredibly young Robin Wright on it just gives it a, an emotional tug. I think it's, it's just got a, a, got a simplicity to it, a simplicity to it that, that makes it very, very special to me. 
I think the the one thing I, I would change if they were to come back to it is is the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack's really dated, even though it's Mark Knopfler. And the fact that the princess does very, very little to it, apart from be rescued every five minutes, that hasn't dated well. But the, the heart side and the, and the love that's been invested to it. And I know Rob Reno, as a, as a film director, loved the story so much that he had to make it. And I think that shines in every frame of the film. I'll grant you, it's not a laugh a minute, but it is memorable. All the gags that do fall are just lovingly put into the script and make you smile every time they come up to it. And for me, coming back to it, it's like reading the book again. It's it's an old friend that comes to visit. And I have a tendency to look at it when you go, you know what? Feeling a bit sad. I'll chuck Princess Bride on. It's your comfort film. It, it's a great comfort film. And I think the people who do have, have the invested love for it, it is a comfort film in the same way to me that It's a Wonderful Life's a comfort film. I've seen it tons and tons of times. There are moments in, in It's a Wonderful Life when you go, I'd like to skip this five minutes because it's starting to drag on now. And then it reaches a point where you go, and that's why I stay with it, because I've invested I've invested the love into it. There was the rumours uh, last year about the proposed remake of The Princess Bride, which were met with a barrage of people online crying out that it's a travesty to consider remaking such a classic. And again, at that point in time, I felt like the lone voice going, is it though? <laughs> is, is it a bad, bad, bad idea to go back to it? I do think that there's some story in there and there's some elements in there that could make a great film. It's just that that is not the great film. And so I'm not averse to a remake of it, to go back to it, to give that story another chance and, you know, maybe help me appreciate it. From my point of view, no amount of rose-tinted lenses will ever make me think otherwise about that film. And I do like Rob Reiner's films. I adore Spinal Tap. I love, absolutely love Stand By Me. I think he's a great director. I just didn't feel it on this film. So weirdly in the middle of you both, because I completely, completely see both your points, because I watched it with a half smile, but at the same time I was like, no, it's not the best thing I've ever seen. Um. <laughs> this, this is a rarity that like we've got one person loving, one person hating, and the other person just in that middle ground. Normally it's like two of us liking it, one not, or all three of us raving about something. I think that's why it's a great film. I think it's because uh, it, because it does polarise. And, and I can I totally understand it coming into it and not quite getting it is 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 a is a good good viewpoint. But I think because it's such a it's such a film that you if you you do like it you love it uh, and and it and it, you do, it does find a way that uh, that it touches you. Then I think it's a film that stays stays with you. I, I don't think it's the best film ever made, and, and, it, and it, but it would be in my top ten just because I think it's got heart, and there's there's so much I do like about it. There are other films that I'll put ahead of it that that always a go to film, but there's something there's a special place for Princess Bride that that makes it a film that that I absolutely champion. I that. Enough said. <laughs> Before we get into fisty cuffs, um, let's move away from Princess Bride. So over the past few weeks while we've been in lockdown, I've been working through the backlog of films that I've disastrously not got round to watching over the years that people are always shocked with. And so we've been challenging me each week with a different film. And last week, Lee, you gave me... Serpico. And it's interestingly a film that I've not seen in a long, long time. Andy, what did you think? Well, uh, have you seen Serpico, Scott? Uh, I haven't, I'm afraid, no. No, so it's uh, another person who's not got around to watching it. Well, if I was to say that on Letterboxd, I gave this 4.5 stars out of 5, it should hopefully let you know how much I enjoyed it. Mm. It was completely not the film I expected. There's a load of films from that era, the um, corrupt cops kind of 
films that have a certain kind of feel to them and like that they all seem very much the same. This was completely not that film. It's a story of a good cop in a bad precinct working undercover to weed out the corruption. And it's adapted from the true life tale told in the book by Peter Mass. It opens with Frank Serpico, played by Al Pacino, having been shot and then flashes back to show the slow buildup of events that lead to him being shot. So you get to like, you start off literally just thrown straight in going, wow, why are we jumping in here? And like, there's just a few like voices saying like, um, well, it could have been anyone who wanted him dead. And it's like, what did he do? And then it goes back to show how as a fresh from the Academy beat cop, he was always this, he, he had this perfect envision of what a cop should be. He wanted to be the good cop. He wanted to treat all villains like with a bit of respect. He wanted to treat everyone like nicely. He thought the best of everyone. He was a genuinely good cop. And then when he gets moved to a precinct that has dirty cops in it and he refuses to take the money, he realizes he's stepping on toes that he shouldn't be stepping on. But he wants them to like be taken out the equation because they he doesn't feel that they represent the force in a good light. And so he goes undercover and starts like slowly try to find out who he can trust and who he can't trust. And what makes this film is Pacino's energy and dedication to the part. He's very easy and likable to take a shine to at the start of the film. You genuinely think, wow, this is a genuinely good person. This is a genuinely like heartfelt person. But then you see him getting more and more frustrated as he gets himself into the rabbit hole that is like puts his whole life at risk and his family. It's easy to get caught up within that character. I mean, it's adapted from like a true story. So obviously there's elements in there and you know, when you see that someone put themselves through this and the corruption was so rife within the police force at that time that he genuinely didn't know who he could trust. And when he found someone who he could trust, but found that they won't, won't help him, that gets his word out to more people that he's trying to uncover corruption and puts his life at even more risk. It's a stunning performance. Absolutely. You're watching a man like his life falling apart throughout the film whilst he's only trying to do the right thing. And the direction from um, Sidney Lumet, knows, he knows how to balance the gritty action with very thought-provoking commentary. It's more than just one of many 70s gritty cop films. It's a really good exploration of a period that the police force should, should be really ashamed of. The police force should be embarrassed that they had that much corruption. It's a tour de force performance, isn't it, by Pacino in this? He, it's absolutely stunning. And there's, even when he starts to like get so desperate that he's snapping at people closest to him. You don't think that he's bad for how he's acting. You just understand that it's the pressure of where he's at that is changing him as a person. Absolutely brilliant performance. And I was just capped like within the first five minutes of the film, because of that starting off straight away, it's like, oh my God, why are we start with someone's already been shot? And then it flashes back. It's like, okay, I'm in. And you're locked to the screen because you want to know everything that's led up to that moment. I thoroughly recommend it. Scott, I, I wholeheartedly recommend you to go and check it out. It's it's definitely one of Pacino's top performances for me. And, you know, the, the guy's delivered some great performances throughout his whole career. But this is one of them that really stands up. I like them too when they teamed up on Dog Day Afternoon. So I don't know why I've not watched it, to be honest. It's just a weird blind spot. It's it's an archetype 70s movie, which was gritty. It had a, a sense of realism. Before the 70s changed... Some would say for the better with Jaws and Star Wars taking over and making films box office. It, it's an adult film. It's a grown-up film. It's Lume at the top of his uh, uh, top of his game. 
it's it's Al Pacino before you start to think about him in the sort of cliched Al Pacino performances. This was again Pacino at the at the top of his game. It's a, it's a, it's a stunning film. It's a it's a real time capsule of the period, and as you say, Andy, and not particularly a, a a good period for the police force, but but well worth seeing. Uh, so last week I asked you to watch Flags of Our Father directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, which is a companion piece to Letters from Iwo Jima. Andy, what did you think? Um, well, the, the, I'm quite enamoured overall by war films. I do gravitate towards war films. Bizarrely, these two war films I never got to see. But you told me, like, concentrate on flags of our fathers and not to focus on uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. And the film focuses on the men portrayed in the famous photo by Joe Rosenthal, I believe it was. That's right. The raising the flag on Iwo Jima. The film darts backwards and forth as we discover how the war affected them because it opens up with them in a big celebration and reenacting the raising of the flag because they're going on, like, a voucher drive. Bonds drives... They're getting used to like try to raise more money for the war efforts because of the iconic image and they were taken out of the war themselves. Those post-war aspects focus on each of the characters and how the war actually affected them and how this sudden found publicity and fame that they've got is also impacting on them. Yeah, it's a story about heroism, isn't it? I and mean, it's not just a, a, a look at heroism that's, that's earned, as, as clearly the, these individuals did earn it on, on, on the battlefront, but how it's how it can be manufactured as well. Yeah, and as they're going around doing the bonds drive, you then get flashbacks towards the to all the events on Iwo Jima that led to the raising of the flag and all the incidents surrounding it and like the horrors of war are conveyed in there. And whilst there's some really good, interesting stuff in here, as a war film, I feel it's just a bit generic. There's so many other okay. better war films. Admittedly, some of them have come since. I mean, things like um, Hacksaw Ridge is one which is of recent years that tells a similar kind of like impact of war on an individual story, but in a more impactful way but even before this film came out there was like war films that are tackled like the battle itself the horrors of war etc so the actual war elements just feel a bit uh been there done that we've seen saving private ryan we've seen full metal jacket we've seen platoon you're not doing anything different the interesting part of the film is the post-war aspect you see i'll agree with you on that point as well because i think that's for me is apart from me it it does honor those who fought in the Pacific. But it's yeah. that question, it, it, it allows itself to question sort of the official versions of the truth uh, and remind us that, that, that these guys were just guys going about doing their duty. Yeah. So seeing the effects of them after the war and how they've, like some of them have embraced it, but then you've got what ones like Corporal Ira Hayes, who's the Native American That's right. character, who he, he wants to be, he didn't want to leave the war. He can't cope with normal life again. And he's going through like alcoholism, post-traumatic stress and absolute, an absolute wreck of a shell of a man. And he's the interesting story. And all that post-war stuff is the really interesting meat of it. Unfortunately, by the way that the film jumps backwards and forth, just as you're really getting into the meat of like the post-traumatic aspects, it just thrusts you into a war scene that is just like any war scene that you've seen in any film and kind of breaks the momentum a bit. It's one of them that I wonder if it had been structured more sequentially. In a way. Yeah. Would it have worked better? Because all the interesting stuff would have been at the back of the back end of the film and left it as like a really good like building and then seeing like how, you know, the build of war, yay, the joy of war, da 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 celebrate like we've managed to take the island and then showing the after effect rather than we're already seeing 
what impact it's had on them. There's yeah. no point in jumping backwards or forwards anymore. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that as a as a, an interesting, well, not a criticism. You're not criticising the film as a, as a critique of, of the structure. It's the structure kind of let down what was an interesting alternate take to a war film, which the alternate take is the post-trauma section. We've seen the trauma of war conveyed during the in the battlefield with films like Full Metal Jacket and Platoon, but we've not, we very rarely see the after-war things, except for things like Airborne on the 4th of July, which is a great example of like how you tell a post-war impact film. I didn't not enjoy it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I expected to enjoy it. I was interested by it. I was caught up in some of the characters, but I felt that it just felt a bit uneven overall as a film. I, I'll go with you with that. It's not one of my favourite Clint Eastwood films. I'd put against that of his recent films, uh, Gran Torino, uh, yeah. Million Dollar Baby. I think, think those are stronger films. I think it's interesting what he did and he decided to do a companion piece with Letters from Iwo Jima, which was shot entirely in Japanese and yeah. gave gave him the opportunity to give the Japanese perspective on the war, in particular through through the one general that he focuses on. So as a, as a as an interesting experiment in in filmmaking and, and and a study of the war, I think it's it's one of um, despite the pyrotechnics that that happen in both, I think they're they're very meditative films, and 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 for Eastwood to, to sort of pull back and and use the meditation of a look a look at war and the effects it has on people's lives. So I applaud it for that, but it wouldn't be up there in my certainly in my my top 10 of, of Clint Eastwood directed movies. Letters from Iwo Jima was in my list as well, so obviously I did delve into that one as well. And that runs more sequentially. There's only like, the, it's bookended by historians unearthing aspects from the That's caves right. on Iwo Jima. And the rest of the story just flows through the whole Battle of Iwo Jima because after the flag was raised, the battle still continued. And oh, so you absolutely. Get to see, you get, the, I, I find that the Letters from Iwo Jima was more, the more interesting of the two films because it showed that opposing viewpoint. It showed that the villains aren't necessarily all villains. And it yeah. was, you know, it was very respectful in the way it did it. I was, I was quite surprised because I was expecting it to be, you know, oh, well, you know, America's the good guys, yay. But no, it, it, it just portrays it purely from the Japanese perspective and doesn't convey the US troops as all being perfect and heroes either at the same time. Interesting films to watch. I would recommend people to watch them. You know, I recommend people to watch everything that I don't like just to make your own opinion up anyway. But they are interesting films. It is just that Flags of Our Fathers is just, it's just let down by the editing. Okay. Okay. Well, that now takes us on to our deep dive. As uh, we've got really nothing to, to review that's out in the cinemas, we're going to look at a, uh, a deep dive. We mentioned it last week, and that is... Untouchables. Al Capone, the king of the underworld. Somebody messes with me, I'm going to mess with him. Elliot Ness, the leader of the Untouchables. I have sworn to put this man away. Four honest men took on an army of crime and swore to bring Capone to his knees. You wait till the fight's over, one guy's left standing, and that's how you know who won. The Untouchables came out in 1987, directed by Brandy Palmer, stars Kevin Costner, Charles Martin Smith, Andy Garcia, Robert De Niro, and of course, Sean Connery. What a cast. What an absolute cast. What a great, great movie. Oh yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of love for this film. This is one that I go back to quite frequently. And when we said that, like, we we're going to be talking about it, I didn't need to rewatch it. I've seen it so much that I know so much about it, but I couldn't wait to watch it again. Okay, so just to bring you up to up to date, for those who've not seen it, it's set during the 1930s Prohibition. The reigning kingpin of crime was Al Capone, and he was supplying illegal liquor 
and has nearly basically the entire city of Chicago under his grip. Bureau of Probation uh, brings in agent, a young Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, who's tasked at bringing a stop to Capone's activities. He's a bit of a Boy Scout. You've got to remember, this is this is the film that really put Kevin Costner on the map. He was up and coming, but this was the film that that brought him up. So uh, with a chance meeting of a veteran Irish-American officer, Jim Malone, played by Sean Connery, with a, trolley, a truly inappropriate accent, uh, <laughs> it doesn't even bother really trying, but that doesn't matter. He puts together a team who were the press dubbed the untouchables because they are the guys who are literally whiter than white and can bring down Capone. It's a fantastic film. Tell me why you love this film. It's got a grandiose nature to it. The direction in it is sumptuous. It's It truly conveys the era. I mean, I've, I've got a love for this Prohibition era anyway. You throw any gangster-led Prohibition films in my direction and I'm going to lap it up. But this, for me, is like one of the best. And even though it's very fictionalised in the way that it's approaching it, I think that all the cast are really on board with it. They're really throwing everything into it. The sets are amazing. I mean, there's the hotel set where like Capone is residing and there's the sweeping shots that takes from the newspapers getting dropped at the side of the road, someone carrying it through up this flight of stairs, all the while whilst a Morricone soundtrack is just drawing you along and just conveying the area perfectly. because It's a brilliant soundtrack. Importantly, Morico- I mean, Mor- Morricone's scores are always good anyway, but in this, the soundtrack itself is a character, and I think it's one of his best ones that he's ever put out. It's one that I will listen to over and over again. I think that there's some great themes in there. The whole film, that, that it's cheesy at points, but it's also brutally harsh at a lot of other points. And it's a sweeping epic tale told of the decline of Capone, basically. I think sweeping is the right word to describe it, Andy, because I think that's what De Palma does with it. His canvas sweeps throughout the film. He he was always a very visual director, but he he brings something absolutely uh, operatic almost to it. Uh, it, It's an elegant looking film. Also, let's not forget the David Mamet who wrote the script. It's, it's It's an elegantly efficient script. doesn't waste a word. It's absolutely spot on all the way through. De Palma wears his influences on his sleeve and he's proud of them. I mean, oh, know, his Hitchcock the, influences are huge. The, yeah, there's the Hitchcock ones. And then there's the Battleship Potemkin influence of the train station uh, finale. Yeah, that shootout is tremendous. Oh, it's, it's just beautifully shot, beautifully framed and so well paced. Everything is so well structured and thought out. There's not one... There's not one loose element of the film that makes you go, eh, I'm not bothered at that point. Well, let's talk about the cast, because the cast are interesting. The legend is is that, uh, well, De Niro got the role for Val Capone. And at this point, uh, De Niro wasn't a, a box office name. He was a bit of an outsider in, a, in Hollywood. He, he'd, he'd gone through sort of the independent circuit with Scorsese. So this was a real, a, a, an opportunity to put in front of a mainstream audience. Of course, he'd, he'd, he'd been lavish with awards for things like Raging Bull at this point. Um, but he, he joined the cast and he, he had to gain about £30 to play Capone. Uh, but originally cast was was Bob Hoskins, which was an <laughs> <Yeah>. interest <laughs> in the kind of what-ifs of movie uh, of movie history. The, the what-if of Bob Hoskins playing that role would have been really interesting. There's a little bit of a side story, isn't there, about that? Yeah, the, um, when Hoskins was a, a De Palma's first choice as Capone, but when De Niro took on the role, Hoskins was sent a $20,000 fee for his services which resulted in Bob Hoskins phoning up um, 
De Palma and asking whether he's got any other films that he wants to not cast him in. <laughs> <laughs> But no, you, you have to remember, I mean, people like sneer at the idea of Bob Hoskins being in it, but Bob Hoskins was coming from that kind of like gangsterish, kind of gritty criminal film series. As oh, kind yeah, of the Longer Friday is he, he was a British Capone so in that film. He was a hard edged kind of actor at the time. He wasn't Mario, as people unfortunately remember him. Or even, you know, Who uh, uh, Framed Roger Rabbit proved that he could do the American accent, but yeah. it made him likable. But yeah, you're right. He, People did forget that he came from a hard man background. So, so De, uh, De Niro was fantastic as Capone. He brings menace and he brings gravi- gravitas to it. But, but the role of uh, of Elliot Ness now it's always harder playing the hero, especially when you're playing against a, a big character like like De, like De Niro. Yeah. And initially, De Palma had wanted Don Johnson to play the role. Uh, Mickey Rourke turned down. Mickey Rourke was up for it as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and Kevin Costner got it. And Kevin Costner wasn't a big name, but this is the film that cemented his career. He'd, he'd had, he was he was building up as a leading man, but this is the one. And he brings that Boy Scout human element to it. He's he's always naturalistic all the way through. Um, he's he, we feel his pain. Um, we see the weight of the world on his shoulders. But he's a man who you can see it in his eyes. He's doing the right thing. Andy Garcia was at the start of his his career with this as well. Let's not forget him. Oh, he looks so young when you rewatch it. (laughs) And this is the film that that broke him into Hollywood. And of course, there was Sean Connery, who, let's not forget, was actually nominated and won an Oscar for for Best Supporting Actor. Yep. He he plays an Irish cop with a Scottish accent in that same way that Connery plays every character that he ever plays with a Scottish accent, regardless of the nationality. But you don't care because he gives his all through the performance. It's a fantastic performance by Connery. His speeches that he gives are the mesmerising. And I mean, it helps the the way that the shot and framed also draws you into it. But every word that comes out of his mouth, you're just caught on. You absolutely believe in this character. You absolutely accept it. Um, Small detail that I noticed when watching it this time, which I hadn't really spotted before. I kind of knew, but I hadn't really pieced it together. Two, Two of the untouchables both have a drink and seem to actually enjoy drinking alcohol during Prohibition. So they are breaking the law themselves. Those two are the two members of the Untouchables who die over the course of the film, whereas the two who don't drink through the film don't die. Oh, that's interesting. It's... uh, Charles Martin Smith. Charles Martin Smith's Wallace character. When it's the Canadian border ambush, there's one of the barrels is shot and leaking, and he looks around to make sure no one's watching before cupping his hands and then taking a sip. And then, like, looking around again, like, knowing that he's done something wrong, he dies. And when Connery's house is being stalked later in the film, you see him go through into his kitchen, and he's got a bottle stashed in his oven <laughs> out of sight. So he's he's been, he's been a regular drinker by that one, and he knows that he's doing wrong, and he dies. But Ness and Stone both live to the end, because both of them are the pure cops. And as much as this might just be a coincidence... I I can't help but think that De Palma deliberately staged it like that because he's he's got that kind of attention to detail that he would put things like this into a film. Interesting. Yeah, I just want to point out one last thing before before we bring this to an end is which is Sean Connery at that point he'd made Bond but it, he wasn't the big star that he had been. It, it's he wasn't the move movie star that he, he was. He was doing a lot of smaller films. He was doing films like Highlander. We know our love for Highlander, but but that's the film that brought him back. That's the film that gave him a, a big second wind of a career. And there's a reason that Sean Connery works in that film is because he is just a movie star. And that's why yeah. it doesn't matter about the accent all the way through. He's a movie star. 
It's a fantastic film. If you've not had chance to see The Untouchables, it's strangely enough, I, um, hopefully you'll get it. It's on British TV this week. How ironic is that? And I'm <laughs> sure you'll be able to find it on some other streaming platforms. It is a work of brilliance. Before we move on to the neat things, I just want to do a quick roundup of two other films I've seen this week. One, which is a brand new film, which appeared on Netflix, a Spanish film called The Platform. You can watch it with dubbed version or go in and watch the subtitled version like I chose because I hate dubbed. The Platform, cracking film. It's a large tower of levels on which two people share each level. And there's a hole in the middle of the levels where a table with food comes down stays at that level for about a minute and then goes down each day a table comes down starts off at the top lavish food the most ex- excellent cuisine that you could possibly get by the time it gets to like level 50 it's only the leftovers that are getting discarded back onto it gets down to level 50 there's hardly any scraps anywhere lower than that you're possibly not going to get have any food and people stay at the level that they're on for 30 days and then they get switched to a different level and you never know what level you're going to be on or how many levels there actually are. It's a great film with a similar aesthetic to films like Cube where it uses one set but then uses it in creative ways with some quite horrific ways on some of the levels. The social commentary is very heavy in it about how like the upper echelons of society don't care about the people below them, but should the people below them really be cared about because most of them are just analytic, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't feel laboured. And it, I was just gripped. Absolutely brilliant film. Well worth checking out. It's on Netflix called The Platform. And secondly, is a film that came out earlier this year, which now has beaten the grudge as being the worst film I've seen this year. And that's Bad Boys for Life. So I'm going to tell you something now. I've seen about the first bit of Bad Boys 1 because I was more attracted to it by Michael Bay directing than I <laughs> wow was there's some else. words that you never never yeah. thought of here <laughs> I, but after after the rock i thought michael bay was on a winner oh yeah I'm, I'm completely with you on that one i mean the rock was a great film and i actually liked the first bad boys it was the second bad boys that was garbage but never this seen. film this film makes the second bad boys look like a masterpiece right from the offset the film is insulting to the audience it treats the intelligence of the viewer as though they are five-year-old simpletons with a high-speed chase through the city with Lawrence's character yelling and screaming as though he's never been in a high-speed situation with his partner of the past two decades. And then it switches to a prison break that relies on nobody attempting to administer basic first aid, not even the ambulance crew who appear on the scene, or for half the journey to the hospital, which they would have noticed that the person who they've taken out had no wounds on her because she was the person escaping, not the guard who had been stabbed. Absolutely frustrating. At that point of the film, I realised that the rest of the film wasn't worth bothering to pay too much attention with because the script is basically cliche after cliche with Lawrence just being given lines of and screams and he can't act. This is why he's not been seen on film very much because in this film, he's trying to ride on Will Smith's coattails and Will Smith looks so bored with the whole thing. He's clearly just doing it to pay the bills. It's abhorrent. It's an awful film. And I never thought I'd say these words, but it probably wouldn't have been this bad if Michael Bay had made it. All the people earlier this year were saying, oh, it's the best bad boys film out of the trilogy. Really? Really? I beg to differ. It wouldn't even be the best bad boys film if it was the only bad boys film. It's awful. Rant ends. Every week I've been setting Andy a challenge of a classic film that he has to watch. He's given me a list. We had Flags With Our Father last week, and then the one I set him was Mark Forster's 
Finding Neverland, starring Johnny Depp, came out in 2004. It was an historical fantasy drama based on the play The Man Who Was Peter Pan. And the film is about playwright J.M. Barry and his relationship with a family who inspired him to create Peter Pan. Uh, earned seven nominations at the 77th Academy Awards, uh, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor for Johnny Depp. And it did win for Best Original Score. And I think, from what I know, the film was the uh, inspiration for a stage musical, the same name that came out 2011, 2012 time, if you think on. So, Andy, what did you think of Finding Neverland? Yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a film that looks at J.M. Barry's friendship with the Davies boys, uh, George, Jack, Peter and Michael, which were the inspirations for Peter Pan. And I've really enjoyed this film. I got a lot from it. This is Oh, that's good. Johnny Depp's performance is very subdued compared to what we tend to know him for these days. Because I think over the past decade in particular, he's become kind of a parody of his own image. On yeah, I, I'll agree with that. And, and you do forget that he was considered until really Pirates of the Caribbean as a sort of almost character actor. It went for quirky independent movies as opposed to big blockbusters yeah. and and was very much known for almost uh, subdued performances. And he plays well like alongside Kate Winslet in this, who plays the mother of the boys, the widowed Sylvia. And the film focuses on their close friendship and the friendship in particular that Barry developed with the young boys because J.M. Barry is Peter Pan. He is the boy who never grew up. He never saw the point in becoming serious and, you know, forgetting fantasy. He was creative and he, you know, he loved childlike imaginations. And it, it hints on the scandal that the friendship caused at the time. You know, yeah. here's a widow who was now being courted by a married man, even though it was purely, it was allegedly purely platonic. And he just like took a good shine to the family and really enjoyed their company. There was nothing sexual in there. Yeah, there was. Uh, a, it was I, almost a, a, a childlike playfulness, wasn't it? And it does touch vaguely. There's a thre- there's a small line, there's a throwaway line because some of the scandal at the time was the appropriateness of Barry's friendship with the boys. And there's a line thrown into the film that could have been delivered in a really distasteful way. But it's put in there just as like, a, you know, what people are saying about and like him as Barry, like Depp as Barry is like, what? That's disgusting. Why would I, why would anyone think that? And it's, that's the way to dismiss those scandalous rumours that were around at the time. Yeah, because you've got to remember that it was against a, a rigid Edwardian society and, and, very, and that, was, that was looked upon. I mean, Nothing there were, right. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's. There's a lot happening in, in this film, a lot of different tones at work. But primarily, it, it, it all deals with how the events of his friendship with the family helped him mould the story of Peter Pan. And the way that it does this is the bit that really captured me on this film, because it's the, it's the almost fantastical transitions that it does as he'll be telling a story to the kids and then it will show like the imagination side of it and you get some special effects and you get some backdrops and costumes and everything. And it's beautifully conveyed to really draw you into the magic of the story. I, I had a lot of love with this film. Oh, good. I'm really pleased. I, I liked it a lot. I liked the different tones at work on it. It's, it's very touching. There's the glimmer of magical adventure in the telling of the stories. And it's a solid reminder of why Johnny Depp is the star that he is. Because it is, because of the reasons that we've already mentioned, quite easy to forget how amazing an actor Depp can actually be. I, I agree. And I think he, he plays well off Kate, Kate Winsler. Uh, she gives it a, a very grounded performance while Depp has the more whimsical character to, to, to play. I find it 
really touching as a film, but I don't find it maudling, which it could have gone down yeah. that street. I put that down to director Mark Forster. Mark Forster's made some quite varied films from a, a, a Bond film to, to World War Z, but he always comes at a film with with a lot of style. And I, and I felt that that's what he what he did with this. He, he found a, a, an interesting combination of, of you say, the, the fantasy and yet the domestic issues and the earthiness of it. And I think it's a sharp film. I think it's an intelligent film. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm glad you did as well, because I, I think it's it's about finding the magic in yourself and, and, and not being able to turn away from, from sort of childlike, childlike views yeah. of the world. Yeah, don't, don't, don't let the adult in you stop you from enjoying the magic of life. Um, Good. You know, it, it, I mean, I've, I've been referred to a few times as being like a Peter Pan kind of figure, maybe not in actual physique, but um, in the fact that I, I love childlike things that are generally considered to be childlike, childish comic books, I love games. I love storytelling. I love, you know, I love that kind of imagination. So watching something which shows like J.M. Barry was basically that kind of person makes you kind of go, I can relate to that. I well, isn't that an interesting thing? Is it that, that you know, the love of, of, of cinema and the love of, of, of fantasy does keep us, uh, keep that childlike aspect of us alive inside and, and, and enables us not to, to look at the world in a sort of world weary, cynical way. And that, that we still get excited by, by a new movie or a new comic book or something to read or something to play all the things that we talk about in the show. I, th- I think it's an important thing. And I'd rather have that than yeah. having a dour colorless look on life. And, and, you know, I, I embrace the sort of the film geek and the, the, the genre geeks that we are. But yeah, Finding Neverland's definitely one that was worth watching. I'm glad I've ticked that one off my list. And this is one that I'll probably get round to watching again. And that's the key thing is that there's, there's a few of these films that I've been watching as part of my Oscar history, re, like watchers for the first time, that I've watched them once. I'm probably not going to watch them again. But this, I'm keeping to one side and I'll probably pop it on again when I just want that kind of feel of a movie. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, a film I absolutely adore, came out in 2007. Uh, directed by Andrew Dominic. Andy, what did you think? Now, we said when you gave me this challenge last week that as someone who's a fan of Westerns, this was a weird oversight. And it wasn't one that I had deliberately avoided. It's one that I just couldn't find time for because it's quite a long film. It is. And it's a, it's a, having watched it, it's a film that you need to be in the right frame of mind to watch and appreciate because it's not your typical Western. It's a revisionist Western. And it looks at the very strained relationship of the James gang, the hero worship that Robert Ford had for Jesse James and the events that led to the killing of his icon. Brad Pitt playing Jesse James as unnerving and unlikable as you could possibly imagine. So he's a hard, there's no characters within this film for you to just like enjoy and root for because everyone just seems a bit off. I'll totally agree with everything you're saying. It completely drew me in. The fact that there was no one to root for, I found was a, made for a much more compelling drama that was on, playing out. It made it chilling. It made it, you didn't know where it was going to go. You couldn't, you couldn't think like, oh, well, you know, that person's going to do this, that person's going to do that. You could, everything was unpredictable. But more than anything, I mean, I could tell right from the offset who the cinematographer was on this film. Oh, absolutely. Deakins. Oh, that that man is a treasure. 
the nighttime train raid scene. As soon, and then that, this is early in the film. The night because the film more or less starts off with the planning for the nighttime train raid, which is the last outing of the whole Jesse James, uh, the James gang. And for a nighttime scene to be shot in such a way that you capture every detail, just shows the beauty that he brings to his craft. And it is and a it craft. Is it's a craft. It's it, it's not just slapping a camera down and putting some lightings up. He plans everything meticulously and knows how to bring out the emphasis. And bear in mind that the train itself is black, and yet you can see all the detail on it in a nighttime shot. Marvellous. But no, I, I, I was sold on this film. Once it got oh, to that good. point of the film, and I was already like not understanding which characters I'm supposed to be following more than anything else, it was then just a fascinating journey to see, like I say, hero worship played out. It's a very insightful yeah. and contemplative analysis of hero worship versus reality. Yeah, it's it's about it's about fame uh, and what fame means and what what fame brings, and and the disillusionment and infamy that fame brings as well. It's it's absolutely spot on. How an obsessive nature, when you idolise someone, can lead you to not just want to be linked with them by working with them, but find a way to be linked with them forever through killing them. And, you know, if you, if you take another real-life approach of this, look at um, the John Lennon and Chapman. You know, Chapman yes. is forever linked to Lennon because he killed Lennon, even though he was a huge fan. But that's how he got himself linked. And this is exactly the same done at a Western backdrop. It could also be read into the film that um, Jesse James actually engineers his own death because he's deliberately unlikable and manipulating Ford throughout and constantly poking him and goading him. And it's as though he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory to be taken out by someone else who would then have that story to tell going forward about how the outlaw Jesse James was killed and keeping Jesse James's legend alive at the same time. There is so much to like about this film, including a great cast. It's a smart film. It's, uh, Casey Affleck as Robert Ford. Uh, Sam Shepard, Mary Louise Parker, uh, Jeremy Renner in yeah. one of his first film roles, Sam Rockwell. Everything about it is absolutely spot on. It, it was for me, and probably not for us, but I think it's the it's where the public saw the change in Brad Pitt as, as not a pretty boy leading man, but into a character actor. I think yeah. we'd seen it before with films like California and that sort of thing, but I think where the public realized this guy was, a, was an actor, not just uh, a, a movie star. I think it's I think it's an engrossing film. I think it's beautiful. I think it's I think it's telling. I think it does everything. It's a throwback to uh, to seventies uh, movie making and and the revision of the western. I think it's I think in one of those those few films, which I will say is perfect. This week's choice is a nineteen eighty nine science fiction film, probably the only film to be considered a flop for its director. And that's James Cameron's The Abyss. Moment of truth. Let's go. Forget everything you've ever seen. Forget everything you've ever heard. Forget everything you've ever experienced. There's everything you've ever known about adventure. And then... There's The Abyss. Rated PG-13. So after his success with Terminator and Aliens, James Cameron managed to bring an idea that he had since 17 years old to the screen with the Abyss. A nuclear sub is lost after an unknown entity cripples it, and a deep sea rig is used as a base of operations for the Marines involved in the recovery and rescue attempt. The tensions between the Marines and the riggers are also compounded by the personal tensions between the crew. 
And then it turns out that something non-human lies at the bottom of the trench. Now, this is a film that starred uh, Ed Harris, Michael Biehn, who returned from... Um, Both Terminator and Aliens. Scene. That's right. Mary Elizabeth Mastriantonio. It was it's probably best known less for its plot uh, and more for its uh, Academy Award-winning Best Visual Effects at the time because that was sort of the gateway into a lot of the effects, which are now commonplace, and, and that was what was considered to be the water effect at the time. And that's what laid the groundwork for the, his effects in Terminator 2. The liquid morphing effects that they crafted for this film are... I mean, I, I revisited the film over the past couple of days in anticipation for the show today. And those effects are still absolutely jaw-dropping. Absolutely. But the whole... The, the, the probe unit, which is basically a water channel flowing through the un, underwater compound and morphing in shape into faces... It's a beautiful effect, and it led to the design of the T-1000 in Terminator 2. I remember seeing it in the cinema and being awestruck by it. It was one of those moments when you go, wow, how, how did they do that? I mean, this was clearly the beginning of, of, of CGI uh, visual effects. Uh, it was pre-Jurassic Park. It just had lots and lots of elements in it that, that, that paved the way. But as I said, it wasn't particularly well-received when it came out. It was considered a a disaster even though it, it did make money and it opened around the same time as batman and batman really overshadowed this film it had, had a hugely troubled production uh, that, i mean it was nicknamed the abuse on set and like apparently set like set hands had t-shirts and hats with the abyss logo where they changed it to the the abuse because of how it was made cameron's fascination with underwater existence which he's continued ever since pushed for authenticity where he could which meant they built huge underwater sets the whole design of the the underwater rig it was actually built in an underwater set so that they could get continuous shots from one end to the other and external shots etc the cast were made to wear proper diving gear which had been designed for the shooting in order to pick up the volume properly and also light them correctly and everything was done for authenticity including you know People like Ed Harris having to hold his breath whilst he's got a flooded helmet to emulate this breathable liquid, which he couldn't really breathe because it's, it doesn't work on humans that well. But he would shoot like 60 to 90 seconds at a time of him basically holding his breath while pretending that he's not trying to hold his breath. Absolutely staggering production. The detail, the detail on all the model effects and everything, because Cameron is like, he's a lover of special effects and it's where he grew his craft from. There's some effect shots in there that you don't realize are effect shots until like a little pop-up thing on the DVD tells you, and this was a model, and this was a model. It's like, really? And then you get the ones that's like, and this was real. And you're like, I, I could have sworn that was a model, but no, you're now telling me that that's the real thing and that one wasn't. Brilliant. It melds perfectly together. And it's one of those films that because of the troubles that came from the production on set, because of the going over budget, and because they had to chop it, it got a negative reception when it came out. And of course, stories like that, like the fact that it did have such a, a, a troubled uh, production. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, Ed Harris publicly disowned the film, says he never wanted to talk about it and never will. Mary Elizabeth Mastriantoni said she was, she was treated like an animal on the set and disowned yep. the film. Uh, her quote was, the abyss was a lot of things. Fun to make it is not one of them. Uh, Michael Biehn, who was a friend of Cameron's, grew frustrated by by all the waiting. It was uh, it, it's one of those films where its its backstory 
became the story. It, it was a 140-day shoot. It was $4 million over budget, which at the time was a huge was amount. A huge amount. I think a troubled production has a tendency to seep into, into the public consciousness, and we become aware of it. So when these films then come out, I think audiences are already slightly guarded by by what they've read about and that that uh, uh, of how it'd been received. And of course, that wasn't wasn't the end of it because the film that came out wasn't the vision that that Cameron had gone away to make, has it? Due to them not being able to get the final effects right within the budget that they were allowed to go to, they ended up having to cut twenty five minutes or so of the film because the grand finale just wasn't working. And so a whole subplot got excised from the film and we didn't get to see what that excised bit was until three years later when Cameron managed to get the money to go back, finish it off and reinstate these scenes and give us the special edition, which makes it an even sharper film because it was already a solid film. I remember when it first came out and I I loved it. I loved the sci-fi aspect. I loved the approach that it was doing. I loved how it looked. I loved the cast in it. When the special edition came out and it added in a whole new element to the film of the Cold War aspect, and it does date the film when you look back at it now. It sets it firmly in that era, but it enhances the threat because up until that point, the threat was just this underwater platform. But once you get on the special edition, the bits that are added back in, we get news footage of the tensions that are mounting around the world because the Russians are blaming the Americans for the disaster. The Americans are blaming the Russians. Everyone's ready to push the button. And this was a time when, in reality, you know, people were worried that the bombs were going to start flying at any moment. And it plays on that. And then you've got all the act- like activities going on within the underwater compound because the Marines are getting on edge. And it, it segues nicely into how Michael Bean's character is starting to fall apart at the seams because the tensions are really getting to him whilst he's also going through like his, his episode that he's got through the depressurization. It all leads to the final moments when the aliens who are at the bottom of this trench basically give humanity an ultimatum, of which is basically grow up or we'll kill you. By using these mega tsunamis. Yeah. And threaten the world's coast, aren't they? It really makes it a different film. 25 minutes of footage changes the whole context of the film. Because originally the ending felt weak, where he just he meets the aliens, they, he basically uh, communicates with them and then brings him to the surface, uh, and, and that's it. And it was always a little bit wishy-washy. It was a sort of a close encounters that didn't have a payoff. Yeah. But the inclusion of the mega tsunami, which the weird thing was, this is pre-internet, this is all the stuff that we'd read about in, in magazines like Starburst and Starlog yeah. at the time. We knew this footage existed, and there were even there were even stills of it, but it never made the original cut. It's one of those rare occasions where the special edition is the is the definitive edition, as opposed to you know we've added a couple of extra shots in. Um, I rewatched Close Encounters the other day. I've got a fantastic three disc box set, which is the cinematic cut. Spielberg special edition and then what he calls his director's cut where he takes a, he takes some of the effects elements from from the special edition minus the the uh, overwrought ending of entering the ship and to me that's the definitive version of that film uh, rather than the the dreadful special edition which which came out into the cinemas so it, it's it's one of those where allowing the director to come back in and and deliver the cut that he was supposed to cut made it a better film but it's a film 
that still, as you said, because of the look and the visual style of it and the visual effects, still stands a, a, a pretty good test of time. It's not Cameron's best film by any stretch of the imagination, but there are there are threads that run into throughout all of his films, right up to Avatar, uh, and, and elements that even even started within, I would say, uh, Aliens. Yeah, I've watched this film quite a few times over the years, and every time I go back to it, I get something else. This time when I watched it, I watched it with the pop-up information commentary thing alongside it, and that's how I got to realise the actual detail that he went into with everything. The only disappointment that I have over this whole film is that in the UK, we get the edited version where we don't get to see the rat breathing the fluid. Oh, right. Okay. I didn't know that. Because that is an actual scientific thing that that that, that, that actually works. And they filmed it for real. A rat's getting submerged in this breathable liquid until it gulps in and then can manage to survive in it. Part of the idea of making this film came from James Cameron discovering that this was a real thing and working out how he could utilise that within a film. Obviously, Ed Harris didn't have to do it because, like I've said earlier, it doesn't work perfectly with humans. It will work, but the human reactions don't let it. Yeah, it's a flawed film, but technically it's a brilliant film and I love going back to it. And I know that the cast have like struck it off their CVs because they hated the whole experience. But James Cameron, his approach to making films is he does just use the cast as props. He throws things at them. He puts them in danger. He risks them. He uses them. He doesn't want to create a relationship with them. He just wants to make a good film. And I think he got great performances out of them. Ed Harris is fantastic in it. And it's a shame that he, he doesn't want to even acknowledge this film exists because I this was the film that woke me up to who Ed Harris was. And I looked out for Ed Harris from every film from that point onwards. And I looked for him in films. Absolutely brilliant. And you have to watch the special edition. You can't watch the original version. It just doesn't work the same. It's the sort of filmmaking that, that Cameron does very, very well. Uh, the effects work is, is is unbelievable. The design of the film is is fantastic. And as you say, to a degree, scientifically accurate. This is a film only to be viewed as a, as a special edition. And apparently there is talk of a 4K release uh, coming up to promote... <laughs> um, to promote well, it's gone past its 30th anniversary, so but there is talk yeah, of a, of a, of a 4K been, well, release. It's, which it's, still not, it's still not actually got a proper Blu-ray release. It's only ever had the one DVD mastering. And it keeps getting hinted that he's he's re-engineering it and he's, uh, he's planning to do it, but then nothing ever happens. This and True Lies are the two films of James Cameron that seem to have just vanished into a non-Blu-ray oblivion. Hmm, interesting. Maybe we'll get to see a, a, an eventual release on one anniversary. We've got, like you say, we've gone past the 30th anniversary. Maybe on the 35th we might get to see it. Let's wait and see. And that's it for another episode of Just The Reviews. If you liked what you heard, and this was your first time listening to the podcast, then the general episodes are all available on the streaming platforms. Get yourself subscribed. Give us a like. Give us a review. Let us know what your favourite films are. Get in touch with us via Twitter at Filmfile UK. Or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>